Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. It's a warm late autumn day in South Auckland. I'm sitting in a packed event centre in Manico. Just raise your left hand. The oath will be read out by Tassie here from the local board. You are to repeat the oath line by line. 320 people from 24 countries are about to become New Zealanders. Uh, good morning. This is the important part of your oath of allegiance. So when I say follow me, you follow in the loud and clear voice. I'm Noelle McCarthy. This was my first time at a citizenship ceremony, and I wasn't taking part in it. I state your name, your full name. Oh, come on, you can do better. Okay, let's go again. I'm a permanent resident of New Zealand, which means I can work here, vote here, and travel in and out of the country at my own discretion. But I don't have a black and silver passport with a fern on it. And bear true allegiance to Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. I'm not officially a Kiwi. Not yet, anyway. Queen of New Zealand. I came here from Ireland 15 years ago, but I still haven't taken the plunge. Becoming a New Zealander means different things to different people. You've made a choice. You've made a choice to be here. You've made a choice to make that extra step. And it, it feels like my country now. Well, for me, being a Kiwi means a lot of possibilities, a lot of um, second, well, just second chances. After 42 years of canoeing, I'm now finally arrived to Aotearoa. <laughs> and just being able to pursue my dreams um, and being able to... Um, be the person I can become because poverty won't stop me from being that person from now. In association with Massey University, this is Slice of Heaven, a podcast series about immigration when more people are coming to New Zealand than ever before. In an election year, the stakes are high. The debate can get emotional, and we won't always agree. Not when there are so many different points of view. We've been here for a thousand years. You guys have been here for 200 years. Like, we're all immigrants. I think if we want to say that, look, we don't want Chinese people, then bloody well say it. If the per capita GDP effect of immigration is not positive, we shouldn't do it. You know, you're happy to take things that you get from China, all the positives and and all the things that you love about it, but then when it comes, you can't cherry pick. And what are the issues we need to talk about? Immigration is is an issue that just rears up as soon as you look at why we have 90,000 15 to 24 year olds out of work. To try and say that immigration is not a matter of race, 
is plain stupid. I think New Zealand is dealing with it as well as any country, and I think there are going to be many positive aspects. But will we have got it right? What does getting it right look like? We can't let everyone in, and we can't keep everyone out. Over the next four episodes, we'll examine some of the tensions that come with immigration and how they're playing out. We'll also meet some of the people coming here and look at the ways they're changing New Zealand and New Zealand is changing them. Finally, we'll explore the choices in front of us as we move into the future. In this episode, we're looking at how workers from a densely populated Asian country are revitalising not only our biggest export industry, but also small towns in Heartland, New Zealand. And we'll explore the different pushes and pulls that induce people to travel thousands of miles from home and the way politics makes us feel about them. We'll start, though, by going back to our roots and looking at how we got here. When meeting subjects, the Queen's favourite conversational gambit is, have you come far? In New Zealand, in one way or another, the answer to that question has to be yes. Hey, OK, kia ora. Oh, we got some of those here tonight, eh? Talofa, have we got any of those? No, they haven't come this far north yet. <laughs> New Zealand is the last place on earth to be populated, and the genesis of that is right here at Waito Bar. Everybody here comes from somewhere else. The relative lateness with which New Zealand was settled is one of the things that makes us special. Last, loneliest, loveliest, exquisite, apart, in the words of Rudyard Kipling. It also means that all of us can trace our genealogy back to migrants. Even if, like Judith MacDonald from Rangitane or Wairob, that involves going back a bit, all the way back to the first Polynesian settlers. We know that um, those people arrived, those stories tell us so. Um, my father, he did lots of genealogy and I know that there are some 36 generations between uh, the coming of those people and me. Everyone has their reasons for coming to New Zealand. Judith says it's no accident her ancestors landed where they did, at the top of the South Island's east coast. Waito Bar is similar and looks to lots of other Polynesian islands. It has um, a, a huge lagoon framed by a boulder bank, and so they would have recognised it. There are two rivers flowing into there and then out to sea, so it would have been a really good place for them to uh, set up shop. And having set up shop, how long before their new home changed these travellers? When did Judith's ancestors become people of this land? How long was it you know, before the, the people who arrived in those first canoes on the shores here uh, identified, you know, when did they become Māori? That's hard to say. They certainly very quickly would have been influenced by the local environment, um, by the resources that were available, by, you know, and that's going to have an impact on their diet. Professor Lisa Matisse-Smith is a biological anthropologist who's made a study of Wairo Bar. It's not definitively the first settlement in New Zealand, as is sometimes claimed, but its sandy terrain offers rich pickings for archaeologists. So I think, again, if you think about colonisation, um, whether the, the, the first arrivals, the indigenous arrivals, or, um, or later, you have a period of time 
that you still, in a sense, identify with where you came from, your homeland. And so, um, but over generations, sometimes it's one, sometimes it's two, sometimes it's ten. You know, it's interesting to me how people identify today. Your identity becomes more focused um, based on on where you're living and, and the and the culture that develops, you know, there. this country yeah I came here in 2009 and it's it's just I love it here and I've loved it ever since I came here Roz has just become a New Zealander to be a citizen now I feel invested in it in a way that 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 it's like I can't explain it it's it's really quite moving and to be here and and feel invested and to be part of it and to want and to have a child here and and just this is my Turanga Weiwei now this is where I'm putting down roots and this is where I'm going to be for the rest of my life it it feels very momentous. But while brand new citizens like Roz might be happy to participate in the existing culture historian Jock Phillips explains that hasn't always been the case. Obviously you had a an established Maori culture already here but that wasn't something that Europeans could easily assimilate into. I mean, the response was not to assimilate into a Māori way of life, but to destroy the Māori way of life and replace it with a European way of life. Maybe we're sensitive about immigration because our history with it is one of unintended consequences. I mean, in 1840, there were 2,000 Europeans and there were over 100,000 Māori. And Māori had all the military strength and they had all the land and their assumption was that when they signed the treaty they'd get a few more thousand people from Britain with whom they could trade. You know, they it never occurred to them that within 20 years they would be outnumbered by the newcomers. Still, that treaty provided New Zealand with a legal framework and as immigrants poured in, language, culture and identity was founded on a bedrock of Britishness. People who came in from Britain, um, and they came in obviously with the support of the British government and the power of the British government, had in many ways a much greater opportunity to totally transform the place than do migrants who come in today into a place where People have, have um, established a, you know, a modern society for over 100 years and where the structures and the traditions and the institutions are all firmly established. That culture endures. This oath here is one of the reasons why I'm not a citizen yet, to be honest. I'm from the Republic of Ireland, My people have some history of their own with the British crown and everything it represents. But although we're still asking new citizens to pledge allegiance to a royal family on the other side of the world, in lots of other respects, we're a long way into a transition period as national identity keeps evolving. Really, particularly since the 1960s and the 1970s, as British power internationally declined, as Britain temporarily it seems, went into the European common market and uh, increasingly we looked towards Asia and the Pacific. At that point, New Zealanders increasingly began to argue 
that New Zealand identity is no longer about being better British. It's about being a Pacific people. A uh, Suddenly Māori culture became very important to the way New Zealanders thought about themselves. And their location in the in in the South Pacific and and in our association with the particular flora and fauna of this country, all those things became much stronger. So that as the British element of New Zealand identity has declined, I think it's made more acceptable the possibility that Pacific people and Asian people may have something to contribute to New Zealand identity. So. You have to be tough, you have to be tough mentally, physically, emotionally. Because the time when we came in here, it was just us, no families. We have to leave, I have to leave my wife, my two kids. So it was really tough. Since the beginning, primary industries have been the backbone of the New Zealand economy. And dairy has become a major export earner. As the number of conversions has grown, Asia is no longer just a market. It's also supplying labour. Uh, hi there, my name is Kirk Vincent Abiwelli III, and I'm from the Philippines, um, from Cagayan de Oro. And as of the moment, I live close to Riverton, which is um, in Waimatuko. And I've uh, been here in New Zealand since 2008. I'm Anagian I'm from Philippines. In the heart of Invercargill, just upstairs from a Grey Power chapter, in the Meat Workers' Union building, is the Southland Filipino Society. There are four of us, crowded into a snug little office, dominated by a pinboard full of immigration New Zealand notices on one wall and a giant map of the Philippines on the other. Uh, I'm Socrates Miliari from the Philippines and I'm currently living at Invercargill. I don't think anybody thought, right, in the next five years we're going to recruit so many Filipinos that they've become an essential part of our dairy industry workforce. New Zealand's immigration story continues to be full of unintended consequences, as Professor Paul Spoonley from Massey University explains. They've now seen the benefit of that, and, and communities around Southland have said, OK, this is actually quite exciting. This is providing us with additional people, so our GP will stay here, our school will still remain viable, and we've got a workforce, and we've got people who are actually very interesting. They breed new values, new behaviours, new foods. So it's, it's, a, it's a win-win situation. So when did you come here? Uh, that was June of 2007. And how come you came to New Zealand? Um, well, there are a lot of competitions with veterinary medicines in the Philippines. So looking for a greener pasture is one thing. Socrates and his brother, who's now in Canada, support their family with the money they make working overseas. The family in the Philippines is like not just the, the primary the family, family and the immediate family. You have an extension of maybe about six or seven more. So all up, is it about a dozen people? About or? a dozen people. So including the children and their studies and all of that. What were your first impressions? Uh, not that different with the Philippines except for this now. I thought uh, when you come here in New Zealand, you're going to um, use a bucket to milk the cows. So I was able to look for a farm in Riversdale, 
uh, under 1,400 cows, but there was eight of us, and six of us were Filipinos. So it was. So it's that's really a big difference when it comes to physical work, you know. So it's it's like he, one guy does five jobs in the Philippines, one guy does one job. It's like we didn't have any choice. I mean, we chose to come in here for our family's sake, you know. So, I mean, you come in here, you have to be ready of whatever's going to be, you know, slap on your face. So it has to be that way or either way you have to go home. And you were homesick. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What did you miss? Oh, my kids. I mean, I find myself crying on the bed every day for, I don't know, the first week that I was in here. It was just really, really sad, you know. I mean, you used to sleep together at night with them, cuddle in you, and then all of a sudden you'd be like, oh, there's no one inside me. <laughs> the weather was shocking, but I loved the, the warmness of the people here. Because when we came here in New Zealand, we met a, a family who became our family as well and then treat us as their family. Rose taught me how to cook the the kiwi style and then Like she, what? What did you cook? Oh, the roast chicken wrapped with um, bacon and she prepared the stuffing. And not having residency or not being able to apply for residency, do you think that stopped you from really feeling like you belong here? Yes. Really, it's it's because the um, I feel like we've been here that long. We've pretty much given a lot of our time in the community, helping New Zealand really on 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 our jobs. I mean, knowing that dairy is pretty much what's really you know going on here in New Zealand, and and all of a sudden the eight years that we've been here has just gone to waste. Do you feel like that? Yes, I do, unfortunately. I do. Um, it's really a shame, you know, I, um, we wanted to apply. But like I said, it's really hard right now. And it seems like no matter how much we try to explain ourselves, I mean, can you please try to give leeway to those people who've been in here for five years or more? But it seems like there's, nothing's really going on. Not long after this interview, the government announced changes to immigration policy that provided a pathway to residency for 5,000 Southland dairy workers. Professor Spoonley explains why. At some point, we've got to say, you're actually doing a good job. We like you. We like your values. We like what you're contributing economically to New Zealand. We need to make a decision as a country, in this case, the Minister and the Immigration department, that we need to shift you to permanent residence. That's only fair both to the employers that have been employing that person, and I hope they will have been acting ethically, but also to the immigrant. Our good name is essential internationally, and that's one reason why we've been able to attract immigrants at a much higher rate than many other countries, including Australia, by the way. But Kirk and his family had already left for Australia by the time the changes were announced. Invercargill to Queenstown is just a couple of hours' drive, but there's a very different feel, with everything geared towards another booming industry, tourism. An industry for foreigners and often staffed by them. It's an adventure playground, attracting at one end young, transient migrants, happy to take on low-wage, low-skilled jobs to be part of the fun, and at the other end, millionaires from all over the world. 
Queenstown encapsulates many of the issues facing New Zealand writ large. Local building contractor Peter Campbell does a lot of work for high net worth individuals. Well, I could definitely do with, right, right now, probably 15 more builders. Um, but, you know, anybody who's, um, who's, who's a good builder is obviously busy at the moment. So bringing them in from overseas is, um, is, is an option that everyone's looking at. Um, and I'd like to see the government um, provide that opportunity to be able to bring people in on 12 or 18 month visas um, to, to assist when we've, when we've got a boom on. Um, and then they can go back to uh, when, when, when things aren't so busy. But that would definitely, but the accommodation's probably the biggest driver. If we had accommodation at a reasonable price here in Queenstown, then people would come. Is there a need to sort of prepare for a growing city? There's a lot of work being done on the infrastructure here at the moment and um, there has been for a number of years but the, the growth's kind of unprecedented so it is struggling to keep up um, and everyone's aware of that. Um, so yeah, traffic is becoming a, a big issue um, and certainly um, even uh, the airport uh, here every time they build a new terminal or do a new car park by the time it's finished they need to do another one. Queenstown needs workers, but workers building housing need houses too. If you haven't anticipated them, reacting to infrastructure needs takes time and it's expensive. Peter Campbell's clients might be rich enough not to have to worry about building something they may not need, but government and local councils seem wary of grand projects vulnerable to an unpredictable business cycle. It's inevitable that it will fall off and it has typically and historically been a boom-bust area, a bit of a gold mining, gold rush sort of a place. But it sort of feels to me, and I'm no economist, but it sort of feels to me that the demand for this area is going to continue for quite some time. Immigration is just one strand of the economy and it's influenced by such a wide range of pushes and pulls that it's very hard to predict with certainty what's going to happen next. We've now got the next wave, which is coming from the UK and the USA, pushed out, if you like, by Brexit and by the Trump presidency. Neither of which, you'll remember, were entertained as serious possibilities 18 months ago. Former Reserve Bank economist Michael Riddell suggests net migration in New Zealand will always be linked to what's happening elsewhere. We've been seeing an exodus for the last 40 years and no doubt it will resume as the Australian economy picks up again. I mean, wages in Australia are 35 to 40% higher than they are here. Uh, That gap opened up back in the 60s and 70s uh, and hasn't shown any signs of closing. Immigrants can also be affected by events that take place a long way from their new homes. Samoan-born writer Oscar Keitley remembers how Pacific immigrants went from being sought after to persona non grata as a result of changes on the other side of the world. In the 50s and the 60s, we had unfettered migration because the country needed workers. You know, I mean, we had New Zealand prime ministers go over to Samoa and, you know, ask for people to come over. Um, And so there was that. And then all of a sudden, you know... We had the oil crisis happen in, what was it, 73? And then Britain joining the EU, which, of course, I've just left. <laughs> Good one. But all the pain that that caused, Britain joining the EU, the oil crisis overnight, stop stopping buying our butter, the economic downturn, and suddenly all these immigrants, all these people that had no issues before were suddenly uh, part of the election campaigns and held up as a reason to to vote for someone because, look, we'll keep an eye on these people. 
The Dawn Raids ran from 1974 through to the 1980s, and it wasn't the last time anti-immigration rhetoric would flower in an electoral cycle. In 1987, a new law reset the government's approach to immigration, replacing the traditional source-country approach, which favoured migrants from the UK and other European countries. Now it was no longer about where people came from or what they looked like. It was about what they could do. But within a decade, immigration was dividing people again. In terms of the initial period, the 1990s, it was pretty awful and the reaction, the negative reaction was very significant. And of course it culminated in that 1996 election at which New Zealand first adopted a very strong anti-immigrant policy. And of course it wasn't immigrants, it was Asian immigrants. That's the word that was missing from that description. And the anxiety and to some extent, the hostility of New Zealanders towards that early wave was very profound. That discussion can be started from quite a logical position, like, for instance, saying, oh, you know, we're, we're having difficulty um, supplying housing in Auckland and therefore we, are, we think it's a good idea to limit migration. Ali Akram was born here to a Pakistani father and an English mother who settled in Christchurch in the 70s. That might be a very rational argument that you're having up there, but hardwired into the subconscious of many people might be this idea of us and them. Um, and that might be the thing that's being exciting people and pushing them towards these positions as opposed to the conversation about housing or infrastructure or any of these sorts of things. We'll hear more from Ali later in the series, but the point he's making, that underlying this rational conversation, there's a collective id that sees things in black and white terms. That's an important point to recognise. It shouldn't put us off having the conversation, though. Economic analyst Julie Fry saw the consequences of not engaging when she worked for the UK Treasury. I could see the seeds of what led to Brexit occurred, you know, back in 2004 and earlier when... There was no discussion allowed around, you know, this is a problem for me. So, you know, white working class people were saying, I think this is an issue. I'm seeing, I'm seeing, you know, my community aren't getting offered jobs for whatever reason. And perception or reality doesn't so much matter when someone has a vote, right? If someone sees it as a problem, somebody needs to engage with that, you know, politically. Ignoring the issues is doing everyone a disservice. The Salvation Army's latest report into youth unemployment highlights the impact of unskilled immigrants on young people trying to get into the workforce, as their social policy advisor Alan Johnson explains. Immigration is is an issue that just rears up as soon as you look at why we have 90,000 15 to 24-year-olds out of work, right? Doing nothing. Because you say, hang on a minute, we're, we're, we're letting people come in and work as service station attendants and checkout operators and waiters. Aren't those the sort of jobs that, that are entry-level jobs for, for, for New Zealand residents? Of course they are. The reality is they're not getting them because we're importing labour to do that. And, and we took exception to that and we said, look, that's just not good enough to, to, to say, well, we'll assign these people to, 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 the, to the scrap heap. This is a complex issue. It's not as simple as just herding young people into jobs instantly. For anything above entry-level work, they'll need training, so there'll be a time lag before they're ready to get into the workforce. And a certain type of employee is more attractive to employers. Filipinos have established a reputation for being willing workers. On my last farm, I had three Kiwis that were working for me. And I had to go back 
every every evening to the work they've done to make sure that everything is right. Socrates Maliari says that plugging the gaps was just part of his job on Southland dairy farms. And I had to work from the time that I uh, uh, I finished my job to before it it becomes dark, just to just to redo the things that they've done. Immigrants go the extra mile because they want to be part of New Zealand. And being valued is a good way of being accepted. At least that's been my experience. But I'm still not a New Zealand citizen, although I'm about to have a baby who will be. Does that mean we'll have to go in two different passport queues every time we travel? That'll be weird. What's weirder, though? Standing in a different queue to my baby or pledging allegiance to an English queen? Bill English says New Zealanders are social pragmatists. There's a temptation to read that as an invitation to just stand up and say it and mentally cross my fingers. Taking the oath of citizenship means different things to different people. But no matter who you are, why you came here or how long it took you, becoming a citizen changes who you are. It's not something that people take lightly. I've come so far Journey's been it was very emotional. It was more. It was more charged and um, amazing than I thought it would be. I found myself standing in the Auckland Town Hall with 400 other people from every country in the world and countries I'd never heard of. And for each of us, it was an emotional experience. Walking, having our name called and walking across the stage on our own to receive to receive our uh, our certificate. It was amazing. And so you know, that's when I really. You know, because it was decades of me being in denial. But that's when I thought, no, this is home. You know, this place has been good to me. We've had a good relationship over the years. And I'm going to, you know, really commit. Immigration's a hot topic coming up to the election. In the next episode, we'll look at tensions. What creates them? Is it the economy? The biggest part of the story of New Zealand's migration intake is around relatively low-skilled migrants. Is it race? Look, let me just say, it is axiomatic that immigration is about ethnicity. Maybe it's the media. And then if you somehow try and argue with them, then you're part of the establishment problem that's trying to put down these ideas and keep them quiet, the whole sort of conspiracy idea. And that's what, and that's what Trump feeds off as well. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. 
To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.